0: As always, it's wonderful to see you all here. A couple of things just to note that uh, this does begin a a very cool week. Wednesday night, we're going to have a worship night. Let me encourage you. That doesn't mean a night off. We're going to worship, Yay! We're going to spend the night worshiping and praising. Thank you, Josiah. So I want to invite you to come out and do that. And if you can't get out here, tune in online and just... Give yourself to worship. Wednesday night at 6.30. Friday at 6.30, we will have our Good Friday service where we will recognize that walk to the cross and the crucifixion and, and what it still means to us today. And then, of course, next Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. And I always look forward to that, although for us every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Every day of our lives is a resurrection day once you've given your life to Jesus because you know life is never ending. And you know He can resurrect even dead things. Praise the Lord. But He had to get there. So let's turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Listen again the beginning of this story. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead and there you, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. (laughs) They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Fathers, we study your word now. We ask your blessing. Your blessing, Lord, to our understanding. We pray for revelation. Many have heard this story, some have not. We pray, Father, that this will be revealed to us. as far more than an ancient story, but one of profound truth that reveals your heart. Oh, Lord, help us see and know your heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might say, Luke, I thought we were in Numbers. We're going to take a pause this week from our study through the uh, book, Bamidbar, In the Wilderness, Numbers, to set apart Holy Week, to to consider this morning, Palm Sunday, and on Friday, Good Friday, and of course, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But before we completely leave Numbers and and go into this story in Luke, I want you to hear something. I want you to note where we left off Because if you weren't here Wednesday night, the Israelites have departed Mount Sinai. Isn't that good news? They're on their way. And we saw that. We left them off as they left off from Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Just listen to this. It says, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran and they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses and the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah according to their armies set out first. So we pointed that out, that that's the order of the march, that the first tribe out was always Judah, tribe of the lion, the tribe of Jesus goes first. Jesus always goes first. You might also note in Numbers chapter 10 down in verse 33, thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The ark of the covenant with its mercy seat went out even ahead of Judah. So that's the pattern of the march. The ark and then Judah going out before the people. The ark that picture of the actual throne, the mercy seat, the throne of God going out ahead to do what? To seek out a resting place. And that's why Jesus goes first. He goes out ahead of you, out ahead of me, to seek out our rest, to seek out peace. Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can Jesus promise rest? Because he's gone ahead. Because he's gone first. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So from that Mount Sinai departure, Judah, Jesus' tribe first, the ark out ahead of that, leading to find rest, we fast forward 1,500 plus years and we come to verse 28 of Luke chapter 19 Where it tells us, note this, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And this was unlike any other trek to Jerusalem. Unlike any other journey, Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem a number of times. We know he would have every year of his life going up from the Galilee to Jerusalem for the feasts and the festivals. We know even as a 12 year old boy, he was up there with his family. Jesus went up to Jerusalem over and over and over, but this time he was going on ahead, and that's always impressed me. He was going on ahead. It's not back in the midst of the disciples, which would be more typical of him, or hanging back in the crowd, meeting this need or that need. He wasn't even delaying this trip as he did with the funeral of Lazarus. He was going on ahead. You can track this attitude in Jesus. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go up to Jerusalem. Or Luke 18, 31, he took the twelve aside, as Jake read a little bit ago, and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus was going on ahead. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. With a remarkable predetermined prophetic promise. A plan that was laid in, set in place, of which he would have been fully aware, in fact, fully intended, which is why on this occasion he was going on ahead. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. This is the spirit of Jesus speaking, the heart of Jesus. And then Isaiah 50, verse 8 says, He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. And of course, you know, the whole crowd would. And the Jewish leaders would, and the Roman centurions would stand up against him. Pilate would stand up against him. But his face was set like flint. He says, let him draw near to me. In other words, bring it on. Bring it on, because he knew the plan. The context of this gritty confidence of Christ is obvious, because in Isaiah chapter 50, verse six, it tells us, I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard, who has, uh, I, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And then he says, I have set my face like flint. Knew where he was going. He knew what was ahead, knew what was coming, and yet he was determined to go up to Jerusalem. He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Even as the native Mediterranean palm fronds waved gently in the Jerusalem breezes, Jesus was resolute. He was a man on a mission. In the 60s, you might have called him a steely-eyed missile man because he was a man with a purpose who knew where he was going. On a mission for a brutal humiliation? No. For the joy set before him for the joy set before him. Not joy in the coming week, this would be the hardest week of his ministry. This would be the most brutal. But joy for the coming first day of the next week, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. This morning, we join Jesus on what has been called the Palm Sunday Road, down the descent of the Mount of Olives, across the Cadrone Valley, and up to the very crucible of Jesus' life, And ministry, the whole point of his coming. But what's curious about this crucible, about this intent, is that it was a rare, coordinated, orchestrated, self-fulfilled prophecy. What I'm telling you is Jesus was the ringleader of Palm Sunday. He was the ringleader. He was behind the whole thing. All four Gospels relate the same story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So he's there. He had intended. He he went on before them. They came to Bethany. He goes to Lazarus' home, or probably the home of Lazarus' father, where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were all there, living there, Bethany, that little village that was on the eastern slope or is yet on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, going up over the top and coming on in to Jerusalem, but on the backside of it, and it was a favorite stopover of Jesus. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they were dear friends. They were there. So they shared a sort of, it wasn't the last supper, but it was the last social supper, a time of sitting around and enjoying fellowship and being together. No one else knew what Jesus knew was coming in this final week. But in the middle of the meal, remarkably, Mary did something very strange. You may know the story. She broke out a very costly perfume. Probably, I mean, can't say for sure, but probably her wedding dowry. Extremely expensive. But the moment had come, and Mary, for reasons that, She probably didn't even understand, broke open the perfume, anointed Jesus, and Judas was incensed. Let me say that one more time. She broke open the perfume, and Judas was incensed. Incense. Thank you. Stay with me. Or perhaps wake up. I mean, the whole thing stunk to high heaven as far as Judas was concerned what are you doing? How can you, this is expensive. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. Yeah, right. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, verse eight, let her alone. She's done what she could. I like that. You know what? Just do what you can. Sometimes we think if I'm not doing some big marvelous epic thing for the kingdom, I'm not doing enough. Just do what you can. What can you do? We can all do something. There is something God has given us, something He's asked of us that we can do. Just do that. Mary just broke open some perfume and anointed Jesus. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial, Jesus says. And if you want to really slow down a party atmosphere, say that. She anointed me for burial. And they said, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of her in memory of her. And so we just did that. We are reminded again, just as Jesus said, of the anointing of Mary on the Lord for his burial. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what was coming, exactly where he was going for the joy set before him the next morning. He gave two disciples some unusual instructions. Verse 29, he approached Bethphage in Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And there as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Why did the Lord have need of it? Well, the prophecy tells us. If you'll turn in your Bibles back to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah, chapter nine, second to last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Zechariah, chapter 9. Just one verse, but I want you to turn there because you need to dog ear this in your Bibles. This needs to be a verse that you can find, that you're aware of. Underline it, highlight it, circle it, listen to it. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet speaks, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah son of Berechiah, son of Edo, which translates, Yahweh remembers, Yahweh blesses at the appointed time. At the appointed time, Zechariah, Speaks At the appointed time, what Zechariah spoke by the Spirit of God, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, at the exact appointed time this took place. This very prophecy happened. He wrote about the pageantry, if you will, of Palm Sunday, five and a half centuries before Jesus called for a colt. Go get me a donkey. In verse 32 of Luke 19, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now just think about that scene for a moment. (laughs) That's just a little weird. If someone came into your yard, untied your horse, and began walking off, and you said, excuse me, that's my horse. Where are you taking it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. What would you say? Oh, well, then by all means, take my horse. Do you need my car? Here are the keys. The Lord who? What are you talking about? What are you doing? The Lord has need of it. That's all that need to be spoken. I suggest to you, not only in the physical realm, but in the spirit realm, that's all that need to be spoken. The Lord has need of it. And so the donkey was led off without another question. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. They put their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road, no doubt, to hold down the dust and make a clear path for the Lord. Luke calls this a colt. The word in the Greek, if you want to jot this down, is polos, P-O-L-O-S, polos. And it literally means a full And Matthew and John agree. And in verse 30, what's interesting is note, this is a colt on which no one has yet ever sat. This is an unbroken, unridden colt. Ever hop on an unbroken colt for a ride? This is not something you do. This is not, I would not advise this. Listen, Jesus wasn't a donkey whisperer. It's it's that he created that cult. He gave voice to the donkey of that stubborn seer Balaam back in Numbers 22. We'll come to that story, Lord willing. That's a hoot. But he gets on this cult that should have just gone wild the moment someone tried to sit on it. Never before ridden and certainly not broken. But does this scenario bother anyone? And as we think about the prophecies and and the fulfillments of Jesus, the critic could very easily look at this story and say, well, Jesus knew the prophecy of the donkey's colt. And if so, then Palm Sunday was staged. The whole thing was a setup. And again, the critic would say, so doesn't that undermine the credibility of the prophecy? Listen to me. All prophecy is staged. All prophecy is a setup. Do you understand that? Prophecy is not that which someone speaks and says, whoa, it happened. Hey, how'd that work? Prophecy is the intended purposes of God spoken ahead of time and fulfilled just as God said they would be. Every single prophecy ever given, ever fulfilled, is staged is part of the plan. God said, Here's what I'm gonna do. He did it. And then He said, See what I did? Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past. I'm God and there is no other. I'm God. There's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Of course, Palm Sunday was staged. Absolutely, the prophecy was orchestrated exactly as the Lord intended. But why a donkey's foal? Well, you Bible students probably know the answer to this. That a king rode a donkey in peacetime. You didn't ride a donkey into battle, you know? Come on, Biscuit, let's go. You rode a horse. You rode something fast, something that would move, not something that was, you know, like a donkey. But in peacetime parades, well, that's when you'd ride a donkey. The whole representation here of Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives and across the Kadron Valley was a picture of peace and royalty, and things moving at a a slow pace. Isaiah 42, verse one, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 42, verse one, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed. He will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. There are times I need to see Jesus charging in on a white horse. Times that he's victorious, coming to win the battle that I need winning. There are also times I just need the peace of Jesus on the colt to see him coming with rest and with salvation and humility, I need Jesus to calm me down. And so again, he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And as he came into Jerusalem, it was not yet battle time. It was peace time. And it was to say, here is your salvation. It is a salvation of peace and joy and even worship. By the way, that's not only our invitation. It is also our example. It's how we're supposed to live. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writes, "For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, note this, kept entrusting himself. Listen again, He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed you were continually straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls do you entrust yourself to him who judges righteously When the world is insane, when everything's going wrong, when you're not in the place you thought you would be, do you just say, okay, to whom else can I go? I entrust myself to you, Lord. I know that I know that you have already prepared for this. Just as all prophecy is orchestrated. And I'm not talking about everything being predetermined in your life, but I am saying when you put your trust in the Lord... He has already determined the outcome. He will see you through. And he comes riding in on the donkey this morning to remind you, peace. I came to bring peace. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This whole week, what we call Holy Week, and, and it's dressed up religiously in many, in many churches, this whole week w- was a week of, of testing and, and scrutiny and trying, and incriminations, and Jesus kept his peace. All week long, Jesus showed us peace in the midst of the most horrible attacks. And so Paul wrote to you, wrote to me, Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Like Jesus, ride the donkey, don't come charging on the horse, not yet, we'll ride the horses but not yet. War is coming. King of kings, he's not gonna be riding no donkey's colt then. Revelation nineteen eleven. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head are, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. By the way, not his blood at that point. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The time is coming to ride the horse. That is not yet this day. Right now, we follow him on the colt, seeking peace, living in the peace that only he can offer. From Palm Sunday, all the way to our resurrection, the appeal is to peace. The invitation is to live in shalom. So he rides a donkey's full. In verse 37 of Luke 19, continuing as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. They shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 118 26 blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord so interesting so interesting before i even get to the psalm note what else they said peace in heaven and glory in the highest does that sound familiar to anyone it's like bookends in the life of jesus god said peace in heaven or the angels did peace in heaven and glory or peace on earth, glory to God in the highest. I'm messing this all up. Luke two fourteen, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's what the angel's saying at the beginning of his life. We'll hear in the last week, the beginning of the last week, it's peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven, peace on earth. Because shalom is God's desire for us all. Let me just ask you this morning do you have peace? Do you have shalom? I'm not asking, are your circumstances peaceful? I'm not saying, is life dealing you a good hand right now? By the way, life doesn't deal you anything, the Lord works with you and gives you opportunity. I'm not asking if your life is smooth as silk. I'm asking, do you have peace? Because shalom in the Lord Jesus has nothing to do with life circumstance. It has everything to do with entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously, amen? And so they're here and they're quoting, and yes, they do interestingly say, peace in heaven. The angel said, peace on earth. They said, glory in the highest. The angel said, glory in the highest. That's where peace comes from, whether on earth or in heaven, it comes from the glory in the highest. It comes from our Lord. But they quote Psalm 118.26 in their praises. Again, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But listen to the next verse of Psalm 118.27. It says, The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the altar, to the horns of the altar. The festival sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself prophesying of that crucifixion moment. And that's where Jesus was headed. Remember, through all this, he's riding the colt and they're praising his name and they're singing glory to God in the highest and in heaven peace. They're having a marvelous, wonderful, celebratory time and Jesus knew all along he was being led into Jerusalem because he would be the festival sacrifice. He would be bound to the horns of the altar, that is, to the cross at Calvary. Why? Why? For the joy set before him. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It would have been the first true stones concert right there. (laughs) But it didn't happen. It didn't happen because the people did cry out in worship. Had Jesus silenced them, the worship would have busted out of the stones. (laughs) May rocks and stones never beat us to praise. This this continues to be, and I'll, I'll preach to the choir just for a moment, but it continues to be one of the things that is, I think, most difficult to understand, and that is how people who love Jesus so much cannot put... Worship and praise at the forefront of everything we do. Again, preaching to the choir, so I'm not pointing out to anybody, and if you happen to walk in a little late this morning, this is not because you walked in late. I don't know, because I was up front. I didn't see who came in. But I'm telling you, it's just amazing. I, what I'm hearing in my head right now is, are you gonna guilt trip them, Rick? Is that what you're gonna do on Palm Sunday? Are you gonna take them all on a big guilt trip? Yes, I am. <laughs> Pack your bags. No, I... We are all in this, because honestly, I'm, I'm here every Sunday morning prior to the start of service because I have to be, because the service doesn't start unless I, I got to be here to get up and start the service. So I've got this, this obvious motive that gets me here regardless of anything else. I have to be here. You know, Josiah really doesn't have an option. The worship team, they got to be here, got to show up. And so here we are, we're here for the first song. Why? Because we have to be, not always because we would choose to be. And I say this to you all because there have been many years in my life where I didn't have to be at church on time. And so for me, halfway through worship was fine. But we have to remember and recognize it's not about church attendance and church timeliness and all. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's about worship unto him and, and our motivation not to miss a note of praise because this is Jesus we're praising. Glory to God in the highest. You know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us be a people who are lined up waiting for the doors to be unlocked because we can't wait to worship the Lord. Let us be a people who show up in droves on a worship night rather than taking the night off because there's not gonna be teaching. I'm kind of yelling. God changed our hearts to desire to worship. Because he's looking for the true worshipers. You know that. Those who desire to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And if you're one who's saying, hey, Rick, I'm worshiping all morning, Sunday morning, even before I get there. Sometimes I'm late because I'm at home worshiping. Praise the Lord. Bless him. That's wonderful. I have no qualms. For the rest of us, I suggest we get our heads in the game earlier Sunday, Wednesday, any other time we're going to gather with the express purpose of worship so that by the time we walk in the door, we are already worshiping. And we praise him together. And none of that was in my notes, so that was free. Maybe you wouldn't have paid for it anyway. But some were wondering, or some may wonder, where is this worshiping crowd coming from? Because, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there are masses singing praise. There are people lining the streets. At first, there were some of his disciples. How many? How many? As he crested the Mount of Olives, how many disciples would have been with him? 12? Throw in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, 15? 20? Maybe a few gathered along the way as they saw them heading up the ascent and down the descent of the Mount of Olives. How many, I mean, come on, really? How many by the time they start coming out down and the worship begins? <laughs> kind of like a Sunday morning here, probably a handful. And then it got bigger and bigger as people began to gather in. But think about this. Okay, enough guilt tripping. Think about this. It's Passover week. Of course, there were masses of people in Jerusalem. All over the place. And the rumor mill about Jesus had been running nonstop. A lot of people who had come up to Jerusalem for Passover were looking for this Galilean rabbi were curious about him. This is at the end of a three-year ministry that had shaken Judea and Samaria. A three-year ministry where lives were radically changed by tremendous healing and amazing forgiveness and freedom and a love that people had not seen in anyone. And so yes, the rumors were out there and the the scuttlebutt and and is he gonna be here? Have you seen him? Is, Is he in Jerusalem yet? I've heard he's a fantastic teacher. I want to make sure and catch one of his lectures. I want to, I want to see this guy. I have an uncle who his hand was shriveled and I, now I see him, you know, using that hand. I, I have to see this guy. So the rumors were out there. Jerusalem was packed with all kinds of people. Charles Spurgeon writes, among an excitable people, it was a wonder they had not long ago taken him by force and made him king. No one had yet appeared so like the Messiah of their prophets. No one had so well deserved the people's gratitude. If they had from the first accepted him as their monarch, and if they had watched every opportunity of doing him homage, nobody could have been surprised. You may even recall that immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000, there was a political groundswell. You know, make Judea great again. John chapter six, verse 15. Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Why? Because the prophecies were being staged. The timing had to be right. Everything had to come out as God had intended. Timing, intentions, they are everything with the Lord. Both of those things, by the way, were off when they tried to force him to be king. The timing was off, and the intentions were wrong. They wanted a political leader. They wanted an overthrower. That was not Jesus, and that was not his intention. It was not the time, and it was not the intent. It was not political. It was spiritual. And it makes me think, what does it take to welcome Jesus as king? the same question we asked today that you could have asked back in the first century. What does it take to welcome the king, Jesus? It's not politics. It's not peer pressure. It's not clamoring clouds because all of these would just as soon desert him. That doesn't welcome a king. It's also not facts and figures that fuel a following because if that was the case, the Pharisees would have been on board. They didn't understand. They had the facts. They had the word. They could have just as easily seen all of the prophetic word as fulfilled in Jesus. They wouldn't see it. What does it take to welcome the king? And I give it to you. It's one thing. We talk about it over and over. It's faith. Faith welcomes the king. It's simple trust in God and in his word that's what it takes. You wanna welcome the king in your life right now? You wanna welcome the work of Jesus in you and through you? You wanna welcome the peace of the king on the donkey's foal? It takes faith. It takes trusting him. Plain and simple. All right, Lord. I come to you because there's no one else to whom I can go. I come to you seeing a situation impossible, and I'm asking you to make it happen. I come to you because I trust you. Faith. Faith. But the people was dunkeyed up for an overthrow. Donkeyed, donk, donk, donkeyed. Like some of you, the Pharisees just stood there mulling it over. Their heads burrowed in the sand. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm hearing it. Oh no! Well, they didn't have the horse sense to even know what was going on. Suddenly, in the midst of the fanfare, something happened unexpected. The king on the foal broke his peace and broke down in tears, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And my friends, that's when the passion began. We could call that the official beginning of Passion Week as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept. Three times Jesus wept, at least as written in the scriptures. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, not because he couldn't raise him from the dead, but because of the sorrow of death, the sorrow of his friends, and the tragedy that death had entered the world at all. Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept here for Jerusalem. Jesus would, just a few days later, weep. Great droplets of blood in the garden of Gethsemane for you and for me. Jesus wept. Ekloson is the word in the Greek. Jesus wept. It's from the word klio and it means to audibly bewail or moan. This was not the subtle daubing of a tear. It's not the king on a donkey going, oh, if you'd only known. Even you, the things that make your peace. Everybody heard this. Jesus bewailed these things. He knows, he even now loudly declares with tears streaming down his face, what is coming? And in fact, the fall of Jerusalem came with horrifying precision in just a matter of years in AD 70. Josephus described it this way. All hope of their escaping was now cut off from the Jews. Together with their liberty of going out of the city, Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged, the children also, and the young men wandered about in the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wherever their misery seized them for a time of the dead were buried or for a time the dead were buried but afterwards when they could not do that they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath when titus the roman captain going on his rounds along these valleys saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them he gave a groan And spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. In tragic irony, a week before Jesus was crucified, they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna. Matthew, Mark, John, record that. "Yashanah! God, save us just 5 days later they shouted crucify him god save us crucify him that's the tragic irony is that jesus wept over the city because they missed the point completely they did not know they didn't recognize and you might say but but they recognized something right cuz they're parading and they're praising and they're calling hosanna to the king How can Jesus say they did not recognize the time of his visitation? They're praising him right there. Yeah, but it was empty worship. It was praise without understanding. Even his own cheering disciples remained clueless as to the magnitude of this orchestrated event. See, we got to go a bit deeper. What they failed to recognize and could have had they just trusted the Lord, had they just looked into his word, another prophecy five and a half centuries earlier from Babylon as Daniel was given a precise calculation to this very day when Messiah the Prince would come riding into Jerusalem. It's Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. We don't have time to go into it too deep this morning. Just listen, but maybe check this out on your own time. Daniel 9.25, Gabriel the angel said to Daniel the prophet, so you are to know and to, to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and there's only one decree like that. A decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From that point, the issuing of that decree, until Messiah the prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. If your Bible says weeks, the word is shabuim, and it is sevens, it's units of seven. Seven units of seven and 62 units of seven, and then it will be built again. That is Jerusalem with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the sevens are seven-time periods, seven-year time periods. How do we know? Listen, it totals at this point to 69 sevens, 69 sevens from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. 69 sevens would be exactly 483 years. Now that's if we transfer from the Jewish lunar calendar, 360 days a year, to the Gregorian solar calendar of 365 days a year, and we rightly adjust for leap years so that we get the exact count correct, it comes to 173,880 days. From March 14th, 445 B.C., which was the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, from that date, you go forward 173,880 days, and it puts Messiah arriving in Jerusalem on April 6th, A.D. 32 right here if the calculations are correct on that exact day jesus rode into jerusalem and in that pageantry and during that parade he stopped and he wept because for all the glory of palm sunday jerusalem would fall here's the point we can wave our palms and praise the lord all we want But if we don't learn to trust him, we will miss him. If we don't learn to trust him completely, for all of the worship and all of the parades and all of the pageants, we will miss him in our lives. And that breaks his heart. So Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Again, over Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept at the... Palm Sunday ride, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In Gethsemane, Jesus wept. Why, again, was he so determined to go up to Jerusalem and ride a donkey? For the joy set before him. The joy set before him. But I want to give you just two more ancient words that relate to this day, and I'm going to end with these. Exodus chapter 13, verse 13. Some of you may recall this just from a recent study. It's repeated in Exodus 32, verse 20, but you need to note this because while it's given as part of Torah law, it is absolutely prophetic. Here it is. Every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Why does God Back in Torah law, single out the donkey alongside the firstborn sons of Israel for redemption by a lamb. Think about that. It's weird. Just that animal needs to be redeemed by a lamb. And if you're not going to redeem it, break its neck. Why the donkey? Why the donkey? We wonder throughout the Bible. Why the donkey's full? Hey, Genesis 16, verse 12 tells us Ishmael was a wild donkey of a man. So there's a picture of a donkey for you, uncontrollable. Genesis 49, 14, Issachar was referred to as a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a slave at forced labor. So not only is a donkey a picture of the uncontrolled, it's a picture of those who are burdened. Jeremiah 22:19 19 tells us Jehoiakim, who is the third to last king in Judah, he will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. In a word, Worthless. How do you describe a donkey or define a donkey based on the scriptures? Uncontrolled, burdened, and worthless. Throughout the Bible, it is bad news for donkeys. Uncontrollable animals, burdened, beasts of burden, worthless. Until the Lord said in Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And suddenly for the donkey, things are looking up. Beast of burden, worthless, uncontrollable, but the king will ride him. Messiah will choose this animal among all animals. He could have ridden a camel. Camels are plenteous. They always try to get you to ride them when we're in Jerusalem. I advise you to stay back. They spit. Could have ridden a camel. Could have procured a horse. Could have walked. Why didn't he just walk? He had to ride the donkey's full. And this foal's neck wasn't broken. That's interesting to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. See, uncontrolled and burdened and worthless Though it might be, the Lord had need of this foal. The Lord needed this little donkey. Again, God could have altered the prophecy. This whole thing could go any way God had determined for it to go, could have set it up any way he wanted to. Adjust the prophecy of the the triumphal entry. Let's just say by Zechariah that your king comes to you walking down the Mount of Olives. He could have said that. He took the palm sunday road. Why a donkey? Because God would say to every burdened, worthless, and uncontrollable person, the Lord has need of you. Lord has need of you. Jesus died to save our necks forever. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Romans 10:9, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you feel out of control or maybe your life seems out of control or something is beyond your control or if you just feel burdened with the worries and stresses of the world or you're worthless. Hey, if you feel tossed out, tied up. Long, long ago, old Jacob blessed his son, Judah. Judah, tribe of Jesus, with another prophetic word saying, Genesis 49:11 He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. My friends, there's only one place that word makes sense, and it's in the cross. In the cross of Jesus where he ties his foals to the vine. I am the vine, he says. And he brings us to the wine of his blood. Who? The donkey's colts. He ties us to the vine, brings us to the wine of his blood. Why? For the joy set before him, and you are that joy. You're that joy. And it's because of you and because of me that he rode the donkey's fold down the Palm Sunday Road and right up into Jerusalem. You're the joy. And the Lord has need of you. And Father, on this Palm Sunday, 2,000 years down the road, as we look back and we think about the very simple story, glorious in some aspects, Lord, wonderful as the people praised your name and, and, and called for glory. In fact, Lord, it, it, it reminds me that everything Jesus did brought glory to you. But in the midst of all this, we hear the broken-hearted weeping of Jesus over those who don't recognize him. Father, that was me once. In fact, it's been me at various points in my life where I failed to recognize you, recognize your hand, recognize what you're doing. But Lord, I speak these words again. To whom else can we go? Worthless or burdened or uncontrolled, to whom else can we go? We come to you, Lord Jesus, this morning, and we say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's in your name we worship. Amen.